You know, before I start looking at the word this morning, I just want to reference the worship, which was amazing. Thank you to Sam and the team who do an amazing job. Um, you know, that new song, Raise a Hallelujah, what an amazing song. Wow. I mean, let me tell you a story about that song. In fact, I didn't realize it until this morning, but I bumped into Lissy, you know, Lissy and Max, a wonderful couple and their, their little, uh, little daughter. And uh, Lissy, who actually sings on our worship team, and the, the, the team were practicing, and Lissy said to me, you know that song is from Bethel? I said, oh, yeah. And she said, the story is, is that during the time they were praying for a boy in their, in their church that was sick, and they got together to pray, and the worship leader was leading worship, and in his spirit, it just had this real sense that it was a wall of unbelief. And so the Holy Spirit came upon him, and that song was birthed out of that moment, and that boy was healed. That song, by the way, that you're singing is a spiritual warfare song. Did you know that? That is a song of warfare, and that's the season that we find ourselves in. And indeed, my prayer for each one of us is that those walls of unbelief would be shattered. Amen? Because God operates in an atmosphere of faith and expectancy. And so let us be expectant, and that is indeed a perfect segue into position the series that we find ourselves in. Because a couple of weeks ago, I outlined the vision for this church The vision of the type of people God is calling us to be. Not a vision of what we'll do, because that will come. But it flows out of us positioning ourselves for him and his spirit. And that's what we've been looking at. And just like this, this perfect image, you know, there is a tidal wave of his spirit ready to be poured upon us. But just as a surfer can miss the wave if he doesn't read it right, so we can too. God is requiring us to be positioned for him. And I don't want us to miss it. Do you want to miss it? No, I want to be part of it. And, you know, last week we shared some pictures of some prophetic words about God is getting us ready. And if you've missed the past couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to catch up. You can do so on our website. And so we've been, we're going to look in this series. We started Humility of Heart, part one last week on pride. And we're going to continue this morning in part two. Let me just share this. You know, when I was uh, last Sunday in the afternoon, um, I was walking the doggy with the family, Stephanie and the kiddies. And Mel, our sister-in-law, was there as well. And I was like, reflecting on the service, thinking, wow, Lord, it was so amazing that you show up, and just thankfulness. But then I was like, but that word was pretty heavy. Like, you know, week number two, and you want me to preach on pride. It's like, can you give me something a little bit easier? But bless you guys, you responded so well. Why? Because it's a word of, of truth and life, right? And then I thought about it, and God said, Mark, he gave me a picture of a field being plowed, and there was created furrows. I said, Lord, what's happening here? He said, Mark, I am plowing the people's hearts. Why? To get ready for the new seed I'm sowing. Why? Because a harvest is coming. And so, you know, that process isn't always easy, is it? You know, we've got this hard soil of our hearts, and God doesn't want to throw the seed where it doesn't get deep. And so it's a bit uncomfortable sometimes as he plows our hearts because stuff comes up that we don't like. But in so doing, what he's doing is preparing us for his word. And I want to encourage us. That is his promise in this season. And then guess what happened? On Monday, I come into the office. My new favorite phrase, you can't make this stuff up. And uh, Maria Ma, who does just an amazing job, you know, leading village kids. And I know some of you serve with her. She had a word for me that God gave her a few days before. And I asked her to type out an email to me. Here he goes. I saw a field that had been left to fallow. I then saw a plow began to turn over the field. And I hadn't said anything about Sunday. 
Underneath the turf was soil that looked fresh and crumbly and full of goodness. And I saw the word, new beginnings. The fallow land represented those who had given out in the past but had become weary and exhausted. God is going to turn their lives around as the plow turning the soil over. Listen to this. The hearts of those people will be ready for new seeds, a brand new harvest. Amen. God is on the move. And I've got to say, you know, thank you for all your emails. I've met with many of you in person this week. God is speaking loudly and there is a rise in the prophetic in this place. God is getting our attention because he doesn't want us to miss out. And listen, I don't stand here ignoring the challenges of life. It's not like I've got it sorted. I haven't. I know life isn't rosy. I know we come here with burdens and strains and challenges and life is difficult. But it's because that is the case that God said, I've got something new and fresh for you. I want you to experience my fullness. And that is why we are in this serious position, because we want to position our hearts for him. And so um, here we are in part two of humility. It is humility the only way. Humility the only way. And I thought the best way to start talking about humility is for us to get on the same page as to what humility is not. Okay? I've got three things which humility is not, which is what people think humility is. Number one, a feeling of no value and worth. Have you heard this? Well, I'm nothing and nobody. Just little old me. Have you heard that? As if that's some humble person. That isn't humility. Really? It is not, because you can be filled with pride, and we looked at that last week, an independence of God, a willingness not to submit to him, and feel that way. But I tell you what that actually is, it's a lie of the enemy. A lie of the enemy that says, you're not worth it. But what does God say? He says, you're a tremendous worth, so much so that I sent my only begotten son to die on that cross for you, and you, and you, and you. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was the son of God. He is the son of God, and yet he walked in humility, did he not? Number two, humility is not weakness. Oh, I'm so weak. I must be humble. That's not humility. Meekness is humility. What is meekness? Controlled strength. It takes humility to control your strength. And we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, are we not? Number three, humility is not pious acts and words of humility. Like the Pharisees saying their prayers and doing their things, not for the praise of God, but for the praise of man. That is not humility. And so it begs the question, does it not, what is humility? I'm glad you asked me that. That is a good question. And we're going to focus on that this morning. And where last week we looked at four aspects of pride, we are going to look at four aspects of humility, which indeed mirrors last week's. And I've got four here, and we don't have the time to do a deep dive in all four. So the first two I want to touch on briefly, and then on the third and fourth, I'm going to focus in, because I believe that is the key message that God wants us to hear this morning. Okay, so here's number one. Are you ready? Humility magnifies our view of God. So last week, we looked at how pride distorts our view of ourselves. In other words, we think we are more important than we are, that somehow we can be like God. For, of course, that was um, the enemy's temptation to Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Well, you can be like God. But you see, humility, instead of that, magnifies who we think God is. In other words, 
We position ourselves to say, you are the almighty God. In awe and majesty, we understand and realize the supremacy of God in all things and in our lives. And so how did Jesus model this? And we're going to look at stories of Jesus in each of these four aspects to demonstrate. Well, Jesus, fully God, fully man. Surely he of all people had reason to magnify himself, did he not? Even a little bit. I mean, Jesus, the very word of God, as we read in John. And yet, what happened? He came to this earth as a baby and emptied himself. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Who, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. That is humility. Because he recognized the Almighty. And let me just say this. I think that sometimes over-familiarity means that we become too casual with God. Yes, he wants us to run as children into his arms. But let us not lose the awe and majesty of who he is. Let us not be so casual with the Almighty that we pay him no respect and honor. For he is the Almighty. And so humility is about knowing that he is the creator and we are the created. It's his rules, not my rules. His way, not my way. Number two, are you with me? Humility magnifies our dependence on him. You know, we looked last week at how pride distorts our dependence of God. In other words, it's the lie that we can do it on our own. You can know good and evil. That's what the enemy said to Adam and Eve. You don't need God to tell you what's right and wrong. You can do it on your own. It's the lie of independence. But you see, rather, humility magnifies our need for him. Let's take Jesus again as our model. How did Jesus model this? Now, if there was anyone that could claim that he could do it on his own, it's probably Jesus. I mean, I think we think Jesus is like Superman, you know, kind of full of power, and he came down, and bang, 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 not needing anyone, did it on his own. That's actually not the case. Let's look at a couple of verses. Jesus says this in John 5, 19, I can only do that which I see the Father do. Other verses, the Son can do nothing of himself. I have emptied myself. I only say that which he says. I had over 10 verses and, uh, that I picked up on that. And we haven't got time to go through them all. But you see, humility has been modeling Jesus because he understood that he could not be independent of the Father. He needed to pray every morning. I'll tell you something. If Jesus needs to pray, how much more do I need to pray? And be dependent on him. You see, pride says, I can do great things. Humility says I can do great things in his name. Pride says I can do great things. Humility says I can do great things in his name. And here it is the beauty of dependence on God. I love this. When we allow ourselves to be dependent on God, we allow ourselves to be who God created us to be. And it's in that place that we feel fulfillment and peace. In that place, the striving stops to be someone because we know already who we are. In that place, the fear goes because we know that he is greater and he is with us. 
And so I'd encourage you to say, I need you, Lord. Not just in the big things, but in the little, 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 little things as well. And let's not forget to pray. For God, Jesus said, when you pray, not if you pray. Okay, that's number one and number two. Now let's dive into three and four in a little bit more time here. Humility, this is number three, magnifies God's truth. Now last week we looked at how pride distorts God's truth. In other words, the enemy said, did God really say you can't eat of this? And it's not that he denied the existence of God or said that God doesn't speak truth. It's just on this little thing that you're tempted with, did God really say? But you see, humility magnifies God's truth. See, when we make a decision to submit to his rule and reign in every area of our life, all of a sudden, his truth becomes the reality by which we live. All of a sudden, his truth is the largest thing in our rearview mirror and the most amazing, magnificent, wonderful thing on the horizon. We no longer operate out of shame and guilt for the past. No longer do we operate out of selfish ambition for the future. But we say, your truth is my reality, Lord. How else can the psalmist in 119 say this? Oh, how I love your precepts, and all your words are true. That is humility. That is humility. I want us to read together Matthew 3, 11 and 15. Let's see how Jesus modeled this, how he magnified God's truth in his life. Matthew 3, 11, 15, it'll be up on the screen. I'm going to read it for us. So John the Baptist was preparing the way, said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee, from Jordan, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. What an interesting story. Here we have, you can imagine the scene, John the Baptist and queues and lines of sinners all needed to say, I need to repent and turn away. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns up. The very Jesus that John had just said, he wasn't even worthy to carry his sandals. The same Jesus that wasn't just going to baptize with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire, He turns up. And what does Jesus say to John? Baptize me. What? What? Well, you can see why John protested. I mean, I agree with John, quite frankly. This is the Son of God. I mean, listen, let me just put it this way. If I was Jesus, I wouldn't want to be baptized by John either. I mean, listen... I turn up on the scene, I'm the son of God, and there's all those sinners. I don't want them thinking I'm one of them. I mean, Jesus could have thought this. I mean, but he didn't. And secondly, Jesus would like, guys, I've got three years. It's not a long time to do a lot. I haven't got the time for this. I don't need it, quite frankly. I find it fascinating. 
But why did Jesus say, baptize me? Well, the answer is hidden in plain sight. At verse 15, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? In other words, this is what my Father has commanded us to do. I love the message translation. It says this, don't ask questions, just do it. (laughs) Say it like it is, you know. That is humility. Jesus putting aside his own truth and saying yes to his truth. And this is how it plays out in my life. Sometimes God will tell me to do something. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense, so I'm not going to do it. I had a word, an email from uh, Tim Grace. Tim and Chloe have been with our church for about a year now, and, and their lovely little daughter, and, and they have a real heart for revival. And he emailed me Thursday night after the breakthrough prayer, and one of the things he said was he just felt the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, and how we're in a season where we can be held back by logic. Logic is good. God uses logic. Don't get me wrong, but if we put logic above his truth, then we're in trouble. Because God often requires us to do stuff that doesn't make any sense. Right? We just do it. Just do it. You know, there might be healing waiting to happen out there, because, and God is asking you to step out and pray. But you might not feel equipped. Well, I don't pray, the pastor prays. You might not feel like you can do it. Your own truth But in stepping out and putting aside your fears, you bring his healing through your humility. There may be reconciliation waiting to happen in your family, and God is asking you to say sorry. But it seems too hard, and after all, they should say sorry first. Your truth. But God does not say, forgive as I have forgiven you. And so you might be in a position to bring his reconciliation through your humility. You see, revival starts with us making a choice to magnify his truth above our own truths. That's when he moves. We are his hands and his feet. And what happened next in this amazing story of Jesus submitting to the Father's truth? We read it in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, went up out of the water... At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And 17, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What happened here? God exalted Jesus. And we looked at it last week, the spiritual law in Matthew 23, verse 12. It is always the case But those that choose to exalt themselves will be humbled, and those that humble themselves, God will exalt. We saw that with Adam and Eve, didn't we? God humbled them, but here, as Jesus humbled himself, the Father exalted him. And I want to encourage you and say this. As you make a choice to step out and just do it, God will exalt you. Listen, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that a dove may necessarily alight above your head. You never know. It's unlikely to happen. It may be not that evident, or it may not even be that instant. But he will lift you up. You will have that sense in your heart, and you walk in humility. And I have a very strong sense now there's maybe two people here that God is calling you to step out in a ministry area, and you say, well, I can't do it. It doesn't make sense. I can't get the finances balanced, and I can't figure out how I'm going to sort the family out. And God is saying to you, just do it. My truth is your reality, not the other way around.
Number four, you still with me? This is a good one, number four. I like this. I like all of them, but you know. This is, not, this is good, I like this. Humility magnifies God's love for us. You see, where pride distorts God's love. Did God really say you can't? For he knows it's good. He's obviously holding back the good stuff from you because he doesn't really love you. That's pride. That's the lie of the enemy. But here you see humility magnifies his love for us. I would like to introduce you to one of the heroes of the faith, the great 19th century evangelist, D.L. Moody. Here you go. Dwight L. Moody. Some of you may know him. Not personally, but have heard of him. And that is an, <laughs> that is an impressive beard. I mean, I wouldn't say it's in the league of our founding pastor's beard, which is even more impressive, but it's a good beard. What a wonderful chap. He was, you know, in terms of being an evangelist, he probably had the largest impact at the time as an evangelist. I mean, he traveled the whole globe. Tens of thousands would come to hear him speak. In fact, it's said that through word, through pen and through voice, over 100 million people heard the gospel message. I mean, that's impressive. That's before Snapchat and Instagram. I mean, wow, I'm impressed. And you know, I love, I'm going to read you a story here. And this is at the height of his fame and renown. And there's a wonderful story. Let me read it. A large group of European pastors came to one of D.L. Moody's Northfield Bible conferences in Massachusetts in the late 1800s. Following the European custom at the time, each guest put his shoes outside his room to be cleaned by the hall servants overnight. But of course, this was America, and there were no hall servants. Walking the dormitory halls that night, Moody saw the shoes and determined not to embarrass his brothers. He mentioned the need to some ministerial students who were there, but he was met with only silence or pious excuses. Moody returned to the dorm, gathered up the shoes, and alone in his room, the world's only famous evangelist began to clean and polish the shoes. Only the unexpected arrival of a friend in the midst of the work revealed the secret. When the foreign visitors opened their doors the next morning, their shoes were shined. They never knew by whom. Moody told no one, but his friend told a few people, and during the rest of the conference, different men volunteered to shine the shoes in secret. Perhaps this episode is a vital insight into why God used D.L. Moody as he did. He was a man with a servant's heart and humility. And that was the basis of his true greatness. Wow, what a story. And let me ask you a question. Whose shoes are waiting to be shined and cleaned in your life? Who's left their shoes out? Are you going to clean them? And I was challenged as I, and I, as I prepared this, and I just felt, Lord, forgive me where I've become so large in my own eyes that others have become so small. Let us not be like those ministerial students who saw the shoes but responded in silence. Let us not be like those ministerial students when we see the injustice in the world and the suffering and the need, but we give pious reason as to why we are too busy or too important. And what I love about this story is he modeled servanthood through humility. People caught it, didn't they? Let me just say, people are watching you. You have influence in your spheres of life. People are seeking out. They're hungry for humility. They're hungry to experience God. And now what you might not know about D.L. Moody, and I love this, is at the age of 17, he started actually his career in business. They said he could have been the next J.D. Rockefeller working in his uncle's shop, selling shoes. I love this. 
Can you imagine at the bottom of the ladder, stooping down low, tying up the shoelaces of the, of the impressive men of society, looking up. Is this the right, sir? Does this fit? Stooping down low, bending down, and here, fast forward, many, many years later, as if that word was a distant memory, something long forgotten. What does he see in that moment? Shoes. And I think it is in that moment that God reminded Moody of who he was. A reminder of where he came from, where he was before, reminded him of stooping low. No doubt he would have polished many shoes. I'm sure he was an expert. Probably could have done it with his eyes closed. Now me, personally, if I'm completely honest with you, I would have said, oh no, not shoes again. I thought I left that world long ago. I mean, I'm a world famous evangelist. I mean, I'm a senior pastor now. <laughs> I don't do shoes. Sorry, someone else can do that. But no. What did he do? Not wishing for his brothers to be embarrassed, he humbled himself, stooped low, and sacrificed himself for others. And why have I included this story in humility, magnifying God's love for us? Listen to this. Because it is only the love of God that flows in us and through us that allows us to love others the same way that that Christ does. Because D.L. Moody realized the love and experienced the love of the Father, it overflowed. We can only make Christ known to the degree that we know him ourselves, and we can only do so in a position of humility. And what better picture of true humility than Jesus? And I want to end with this story. Let us turn to uh, John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. And um, the theme of Shoes is going to continue with this story. But this time, fashionable Judean shoes, sandals. (laughs) So let us read this. I think we're going to start at uh, verse 2. Just before the hour had come, you see, to leave this world. We we join it at verse 2. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Wow, what a story. Jesus on the cusp of fulfilling his earthly ministry. He is about to go to the cross and experience an unspeakable death and separation from the Father. And yet in that moment, what does he do? He gets down on his knee and stoops low and washes his disciples' feet. Not just cleans their shoes, but takes their shoes off and washes them. Why did Jesus do this? We see such a beautiful sentence in verse 1. It says this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, the washing of their feet was a foreshadow of what he was going to do on the cross. Pour out his love to wash away our sins. That is why when Peter protested, Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. I'd like to invite the band up. And what did they later understand? That Jesus went to Calvary and died on a cross so that we can be completely washed. 
This time not by water, but by his very own blood. Paying the price of sin. And even as Jesus nailed there, and I love this story, dying on the cross, about to breathe his laugh, there was two robbers either side of him. One full of pride. I don't need you. I am independent. And another saying, I need you now. And what did Jesus reply? Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And if you're here this morning and you have yet to say yes to Jesus, that I'd encourage you to do so this morning and come in humility of heart and say, you are the almighty God. I need you. I need you to wash away my sins. And I had the pleasure of praying with someone that same prayer in between these two services. And he humbled himself and said, I need it. I need God. If that's you, don't leave this place without saying yes. And what happened to Jesus as he humbled himself on the cross? The Father exalted him. He rose again and ascended on high. 1 Corinthians 15, God put everything under his feet. If Jesus hadn't humbled himself and instead chose to be proud and not go to the cross, you would say, well, how can Jesus do that? He was a son of God. Well, we read in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus was tempted in all things, yet without sin. That is why we know we have a high priest who can sympathize with us and identifies with us. And we see this play out in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, if this be your will, I will do it. But we saw the struggle. And in that moment, Jesus made a choice to magnify his view of the Father over himself. In that moment, Jesus made a choice to magnify his dependence on the Father rather than independence without. In that moment in the garden, Jesus made a choice to magnify God's truth over the lie of temptation. And in that moment, Jesus made a choice to magnify God's love for him in his life. And he responded yes in humility and died for us. Like you ought to stand. And so what is our response? As God has plowed our hearts, how do we respond? We make a decision to submit to him and walk in humility. And as you do, you step out to humble yourself. The very life of Christ in you will enable you to do that which he's called you to do. You know, we've looked at how Jesus has modeled this, but let me be very clear. Not only did Jesus model the way for us, but he is the way for us. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, it is as we make that decision to submit that his very life works in us, and we are able to clean other people's shoes. We are able to do that which he calls us to do in spite of the fears. And so as we let go of ourselves and we let him in, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And let us respond now in worship as we surrender it all to him. Thank you, Lord.